0: Idag tar vi upp inget mindre än just era frågor Vi ska prata om AI, globala maktspel Om vilket land som kan bli den nästa stora techmarknaden Och hur framtidens konkurrens kommer att se ut Alltså dags för ett avsnitt dedikerat till lyssnarfrågor
1: Jag heter Jacob Löfven Jag heter Tom Chong
2: and I'm Nick
0: Och det här är den digitala draken En del av Svenska Dagbladet Jag börjar det här avsnittet genom att ringa upp min äldsta vapendragare, Tom Sjöng. Hej Tom! Hej! Hur har din sommar varit? Du har varit överallt. Du har varit i Australien, du har varit i Nya Zeeland, du har varit i Kina såklart, du har varit i Europa. Har jag missat något? sväng också. Det var jättekul. Okej, okay. men har du kunnat liksom ha någon sommar överhuvudtaget eller du bara så flänkt runt?
1: Nej, men det var det har fantastiskt kul faktiskt. Speciellt med tanke på att man har fått lite möjlighet att exponera sig för hur internet funkar i andra regioner av världen. Med tanke på att jag ofta är fast i Kina då.
0: Vi har ju ett avsnitt nu som handlar om lyssnarfrågor. Och mm-hmm. det har kommit in ja, men rätt så mycket frågor. Och det har varit ett ämne som har dominerat. så helt klart överrepresenterat. Du frisar vilket? E-handel? Nej, faktiskt inte. Det hade varit ganska kul för e-handel är ganska brätt. utan det som har kommit in är såklart AI. Oh. Det verkar som att alla därute är jätteintresserade av vad som händer i Asien när det kommer till just AI. Och för att det inte här ska bli ett AI-avsnitt så tänker jag att vi ska liksom begränsa det lite. Så för dig som lyssnar och har skickat in en fråga om just AI, så om det inte just din fråga vi tar upp så försöker vi kanske baka in den ändå i det här avsnittet. Do we want to Nick, or? Yes, I think. Hey Nick, are you
2: there? I am. So, um, where in the world are you? Well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm in my bedroom closet, but I'm in Shanghai right now. Mm.
0: You are both in your closets, uh, because that's the best sound quality. like... People who don't do podcasts maybe don't know this, but it's a, like constant struggle finding rooms with
1: good sound quality. Yeah, and closets are yeah, they're it. Especially, I would say, in Asia or China, where most apartments have pretty thin walls. It's not like if you live in like Stockholm or Sweden, sometimes you have apartments with like really thick walls and at least mm. there's no noise from like neighbors and whatnot but <laughs> here over here we're just you know we just need to be lucky because at any given moment my neighbor's son could decide to start practicing the piano and then we're screwed we can't record <laughs> but
0: unless it's a really good piano player because then we can just use it as as background
1: yeah unfortunately he's not <laughs> no, he
0: sucks before we get started i want to hear about like summer in shanghai what has it been like has it been like extremely hot or has
2: it been rainy so i haven't been gallivanting all around the world like tom here so i've stayed in shanghai through typhoon season and luckily i haven't been caught in a typhoon but now my house is being attacked by flying cockroaches that are trying to get away from the storm apparently so i've spent the last three days no joke running around the house trying to kill cockroaches trying to smack him with my slippers. Oh. It's a very Chinese thing. You can kind of imagine. Kill him with my... Brother. Really? Yeah, actually.
0: We were just talking about... Before we um, pressed record, we were talking about both of your closets. Uh, Tom has this walk-in closet and is like super roomy and you're sitting there and then your closet is a little bit more cramped and now you're saying that you have a lot of cockroaches as well and Tom doesn't have that problem. So I'm, I'm thinking maybe there's a there's a connection
2: there. <laughs> I aspire to be like Tom Schoen. Men, you know, reality bites. We're barely making it here. (laughs) Okay,
0: we'll see how many questions that we have time for. But let's just steam ahead. So, the first listener question of the day comes from no other than our friends at Svenska Dagbladet. Hej, Henning Eklund på Svenska Dagbladet här. En av de stora frågorna som vi bevakar är implementeringen av ny AI-teknik i näringsliv och samhället- Så jag undrar om det finns några kulturella, historiska, politiska andra aspekter i Kina och Asien som påverkar hur AI tas emot och integreras där jämfört med i väst. Tack. Wow, interesting question. So, you know, when we talk about like AI in China and AI in the West, and, and AI in the West is very dominated by you know ChatGPT and that kind of conversation, right? And I think uh, for a long time, if we look at a longer perspective, the, the implementation of AI has been uh, further ahead in China. I'm going to stick out my neck and, and, and say that when it comes to like business and society and so on. So what is the reason for this? Who's pushing for it? Is it you know, a cultural thing? Is it political? Where, where do we see it going?
1: I think actually the topic of AI is a really good example to explain the differences between the business climates in China versus a lot of Western countries. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you can turn your argument and say the other way around, which is that thanks to OpenAI and Chat GPT, an American company has managed to get mass adoption of AI technology. Because you have researchers, you have people needing to do homework, etc. etc. Actively using AI tools to improve their own productivity and therefore their contribution to society. And then, you know, we can question about whether it's right or wrong to use it for your homework, but that's a different topic. In China, you see the application of AI actually more centrally steered, i.e. it's being more locked out to the general public or small businesses or entrepreneurs, but it's more concentrated on a few very large Actors. Either it's ByteDance that's been fantastic at doing this for, you know, video image recognition and recommendation algos, or it's Alibaba Taobao doing it for e-commerce, or it's being used in the transport industry by a few selected players, etc. So obviously then in that case, it's gone much deeper, much faster, but the ability to use that AI technology has been locked into a few very specific companies. And that's it.
2: Hmm. Yeah. And that's the Chinese approach, isn't it? Just to keep something within a safe silo until we know how to control it. And we know what consequences might look like if, I don't know, if AI gets out of control. And so that's something that China as a, you know, a top-down oriented government cares a lot about. But I do think that having looked closely at the AI space over the last 5 years I do think that you know generative AI and LLMs represent a stark breakthrough. It's not that this technology didn't exist previously. I mean it's it, technology development doesn't happen overnight. So it is it's a steady slog, it's it's a marathon, steady progress towards what we see today. <laughs> but I think what OpenAI achieved with ChatGPT was applying a design layer on top of AI that got so many people to adopt it. And I think, Tom, you use that word and I love it because the difference is that in the past, people didn't have to take the decision to adopt AI. Like you would use facial recognition technology maybe to pay for something, right? Or to scan your credit card so it uploads all the payment details immediately. But it's not not like you're adopting a feature, like inviting this AI into your life. You know, the same way, as you said, People will do now just to look things up, to do a translation, to simplify, you know, their writing or to, to to search up facts, researching for this podcast, for example. Like that's really adopting something to the extent that it now becomes interwoven into the fabric of everyday life. That's a difference, and I think that what we see in China, your point is really well taken, is that that hasn't happened until the government says, okay, this is okay, this is something that we can control and go go have at it, but. There is, I go back to my favorite word tonight, anxiety, around the potential for what generative AI can do to a lot of the the jobs I see here in China. This is just one data point, but I've talked to a friend who works in the design industry, and he does animated videos, and he's spending so much time trying to learn about what AI can do to create videos, and and sometimes to him it seems like an uphill battle because, you know, every time he learns something new. The clients are also learning something new and then he loses a client because they find that they don't need him anymore and they can use AI to generate their own short videos. And I think an example like this is super common in China because so many service companies do tasks that, for the lack of a better word, are kind of menial tasks. You know, website design is just, you know, making something look a little bit better instead of really thinking deeply about how to optimize UI UX to, you know, to enhance user behavior. Right, so it's, it's it's very it's menial tasks, and those are the things that I think are in the firing line of generative AI. So I think that that collective anxiety has not yet set in in China, except at you see the cracks forming in those service industries.
0: But I mean, there is a like political view is that you know China is going to be the leading AI nation of the world in seven, six and a half years. From now, like that must be, you know, to Henning's question, right? Like that must be a contributing factor to the development and the implementation of AI in society and in business, right?
2: I think these comments, though, often get taken out of hand because AI is seen as one big collective amazing thing. Like what is AI? It could be anything like the recommendation engine on Uh, you know, the TikTok app or Alibaba e-commerce, it could be the technology that goes into self-driving vehicles. But I will say this, whether China will be the leader in six years, I don't know. The technology, a lot of experts say, is, you know, maybe a year behind the US. Hmm. But I think two things are going in China's favor. One is, as I said, the top-down structure of Chinese government. If, If the government wants to make something happen, it usually happens, or at least they have an advantage to make roadblocks go away. And so, you know, you see this with self-driving vehicles, right? Like it in, in the commercial space, in the passenger vehicle space, like if if they want to enable self-driving vehicles to take to roads, they just pass a policy and make it happen. And the second thing I think that China has in its favor is just a huge, massive market. So that if we think about how to commercialize AI, There are enough market opportunities such that companies creating AI can simply service the Chinese market alone and become huge, prosperous companies. So you see this in a lot of the AI security companies that, for many reasons, they operate mostly in the Chinese market, but have become huge, profitable businesses around just that market. Maybe the US can achieve that scale, but I don't know if other Western countries have that same advantage. So if I try to
1: summarize what you just said, Nick. So basically what we'll see in the West is maybe more generative AI that will unlock productivity the same way as our favorite Hans Rusling once said about how washing machines uh, unlocked so much productivity among a specific cohort. And therefore they could, you know, benefit the economy overall Mm -hmm. more than just being at home washing clothes. Right. So whether it's, you know, my dad that are actually writing research papers, you know, on a daily basis and how he can use, you know, AI to make him 10% more efficient or 20% more efficient. So I think we'll see more of that in the West, while in the East or in China, we'll see very specific, super hard AI cases probably being solved first, whether that's self-driving cars or something more complex
2: summarized very, very well. And I think those specific use cases are the ones that the government will spend a lot of time thinking about whether it's okay to let AI go a little crazy, whether it's safe. they will take a top-down approach with ample regulation in place.
0: We'll move on to the next question. So, This next one is from Sarah. She sent it over by email and she wrote, both the EU and the US are now picking up the conversation around a potential TikTok ban. How likely is it that they will be banned and how are they mitigating that outcome and what can other companies learn from this? So a very complicated question. Uh, A lot of moving parts in this question. So, But I'll start with you, Tom. They seem to be out of the woods for a while and now... For the last months, it's been a topic of the town in the U.S. Senate and so on about a TikTok ban. But is it really likely that this will happen?
1: Actually, like six months or one year ago, I thought it was highly unlikely this would, this would happen. I thought, you know, that at the end of the day, it's not going to be a real ban. Because we've got to define what a ban is, right? A ban is literally mm-hmm. that it's not available for use anymore. Right, But the further along uh, we've come throughout this journey, especially once seeing the Congress hearing and seeing all the sentiment around it and everything happened elsewhere, I'm more and more getting into the category of people that think actually something very close to a real ban will probably happen.
0: That is a change of uh, of view from your from your end. That's very interesting. I am going to come back to that, but Nick, I want to hear your your thoughts as well. Like,
2: ban or no ban? What do you think? I want to give an, a more exciting, insightful answer, but I I have to echo Tom's sentiment here because in the beginning, you think with that many users and a lot of people building their livelihoods on TikTok, you have a groundswell of support that could counter any political opposition in the U.S. against TikTok. But I think in terms of banning TikTok, it's it's not really a social media platform. It's, it's a proxy play for the conflict with China. Right. And in terms of domestic politics in the US, and right. I imagine in, in Europe, it's something similar. Liberals and the conservatives are aligned on one thing, which is the impending threat of China. And so because of this, I, I think there is political will, if not to outright ban TikTok, to limit TikTok's ability to operate. So, you know, we talked a little bit before about TikTok's ability to become the next great e-commerce brand, you know, in the footsteps of Timu and and Shein that that takes over Western markets. Now there may be a fly in that ointment, you know, because that political opposition is real.
0: I personally feel that there's a lot of ignorance or a lot of you know, misconceptions around TikTok and and the platform and how it's run in the West and so on. I think they've been trying to communicate that as well. I mean, I think they've done a fairly good job at communicating that, but I don't think that information, it didn't stick uh, that long because people are still referring to them as a Chinese company and Chinese-owned company and so on. And I think that was what they were trying to do uh, a while back. But Tom, like, I mean, this is a very difficult question, right? But how do you think they're mitigating that at the moment? And do you think there's a, like a, an overall learning from for, for, for companies who are in, in China and in Asia from this?
1: I actually think that ByteDance have executed way better on managing this situation than anyone would have expected. Now, it might not look like it considering they're still risking a big ban, mm. right? But... My view is that they've done fantastic work to make sure they're not even banned yet. Hmm. Very rarely in history have the most powerful government in the world bipartisanly gone after a private company like this. And that company is still able to operate? That's insane what they have done so far.
2: Yeah, well, they've built built the most addictive product in the history of American tech. And all the teens are on it. Like it's, hmm. I feel like it's a new beast. I mean, you could say they went after Facebook, the company formerly known as Facebook at that time with a bipartisan effort, but I just think that TikTok is a new beast. So, you know, you hear a lot of things about how short videos on TikTok can sometimes, you know, nudge somebody to think one way or another. And so its ability to influence public opinion is extremely powerful. I think that's hmm. the narrative. And I think what gets people scared, I I speak from the US, but I I imagine Europe is very similar, is that the profile of TikTok users are very young, impressionable Gen Z, even teens. Yeah. So, you know, you're in that phase in your life when you're still formulating opinions about what you believe, what you stand for, who you are as a person. And I think there's an existential anxiety around the fact that somehow China can adjust that algorithm so that it nudges you to think one way instead of another. So I want to give two recommendations
1: to our listeners. So number one, read the book, "Chip War, that will give you a total different way to think about the next level of global competition. And this is about where the new oil is or why countries are fighting so hard about certain topics and what might happen. When you understand how high the stakes are from a 20, 40, 50-year perspective, then you also understand that as any country, you're willing to go pretty far to defend your future. So that's recommendation one. Second recommendation is that if we want to simplify this entire way to think about TikTok or China versus US, blah, 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 the framework at least I use to simplify is to think about this as a normal competitive situation. Competitor A versus competitor B. Hmm. Yes? And based on that, you kind of start realizing, like, there's a reason why Microsoft never, never, never used Amazon AWS. Or why Google developed their own cloud service. Like, you cannot let your competitors build capabilities and infiltrate your own systems. Period. It's not about spying or not spying. It is just common sense business strategy that they teach out at business school. Yeah. Good point. And based on that, I think it's sometimes easier to think about how some of these things could pan out because it's just simple business strategy.
2: The value proposition of the US is come one, come all. You know, if you have something valuable to offer, we won't judge where you came from as long as you can create value. If you look at it from a business perspective. I don't know. I think there is something there about the existential anxiety that people feel towards anything chinese and i think a lot of politicians whether they believe it or they think that it's politically expedient they they will act on that anxiety to take measures against tiktok in other words i don't think it's a pure business decision it's like okay america company versus china company this is china company's like golden goose cloud product blah 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 and we have to defend against it infiltrating our young people
1: this is very interesting discussion nick Because my view is totally opposite. TikTok doesn't mean shit to anyone. Okay. Tell me more. Like, How much is it of the total GDP? Sure, it enables teens to have some fun. What does it do for the advertising market, for the economy as a whole? What does it do for people's mindset and people's ability to be happy? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Like Walmart is way more important, Alibaba is way more important, because they actually help the economy progress. So based on that, this is the perfect example of fighting a war. No one, no side actually needs to sacrifice real economical value, but they can use this as a proxy to fight about something so they don't need to go start fighting about TSMC immediately
2: tomorrow. I completely agree with you on the proxy point, right? This is a much safer arena to butt heads than, let's say, semiconductors or at South China Seas. Like, for sure, absolutely. Whether it creates value uh, or is as influential as Walmart or Alibaba in China, that I, I don't know. And I go back to my word. I think that it, it is in a sense of anxiety that it could, if it wanted to, become an extremely influential force in, let's say, America's social fabric. But for all of its users, and like I said before, most of its users trend younger and are more easily influenced, right? And so, like, if you look at how advertising spend has been dominated in recent years by Google and, and Meta, and you think, well, you know, if TikTok ever wanted to turn on that nozzle and start getting a bigger piece of that action, you, you'd take a credible bet that, that they could do that and do it successfully, especially as their young users grow into positions of more influence and, and spending power. You, you could say Instagram, but name me a more influential app in Western social fabric than TikTok.
1: No, I agree. It's just that I mean that if that influence disappears tomorrow, someone else will be able to influence these teens. So it doesn't matter. It's like tit for tat. So it's not critical infrastructure, that's what you're saying,
0: or, like, or assets.
1: Like if Walmart disappears tomorrow in the US, number one, a million people are going to lose their jobs. And people have no way to get access to cheap groceries, which means they're going to start complaining a lot in society because they suddenly cannot get food on their table. That is on a totally different level of impact versus if a bunch of teens can't access an app to scroll perfectly curated videos for them because then they go to Instagram, and they get almost perfect curated
2: videos. I, I concede that point. I think that the, the one thing that we haven't discussed is the precedence though. Right, Because if you can do this to TikTok when, as you say, there's no ostensible value created, although I think a lot of teens would disagree with you, um, or TikTokers, creators, would disagree with you. But that notwithstanding, I think that it's a precedent. So if I can block TikTok now, and it's a foreign company's product, it's come to my home court, you know, it's risen to the top of the league tables, and I'm saying, yeah, no, you got to go. Like, what are other countries going to say? And I think this gets to the spirit of the question, like, I think the question was like, what other, what will companies learn from this? Like, what, what are they going to take from this? Are they going to be less bullish about trying to launch something in the U.S. if they sense there may be backlash further down the road?
1: That I totally agree with. With the only exception is that I think it's very easy to exaggerate signal value. What I'm trying to say that I, if you interview... 10,000 CEOs around the world, I don't think any of them will say that their confidence in the business climate in the United States will drop significantly if United States decide to ban TikTok because it's about how the US have been pushing the storytelling about why they should ban. And that. Is actually very very smart and well executed from the U.S.
2: perspective. Yeah, I think that's one thing the government has done very well on. I agree with you there. I mean, I've been pushing back, but I do think that in this sense, TikTok is a very unique animal, because, you know, I I don't think that most companies would even could even dream of getting to that scale, such that it would actually the arena for some kind of proxy war that sits in the middle of U.S.-China conflicts. Like it, like TikTok's a unique case in, in 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 this example. Okay, we have one listener question from a listener that
0: you who are listening now might know of. Shella där är Björn från podden Framtidens Ehandel. Jag tänkte höra först så såg vi Chin eh och nu så ser vi Temu. Vem kommer här näst? I'll just queue this one for you. So Shein obviously They've gone into ultra-fast fashion, been hugely successful in a very short amount of time, and then U not necessarily limiting themselves on any category. They're doing kind of the wish game, but they're doing it more effectively, I assume. If you can look into like the looking glass and see into the future, like what players should we be looking out for, or what categories do you think will see the big kind of Chinese cross-border e coms go for?
1: I really think we can start just being proud for one second, Jacob and Nick. This is the entire purpose of why we started this podcast, because there were so many things to learn from, among many things, but the Chinese e-commerce f- space, right? And we had the theory about those learnings will be applied abroad. Now, we were dramatically actually wrong in how it would end up, because our initial theory would be that Western companies will learn from these ways to do, you know, uh, customer acquisition and how you play around with different games in e-commerce and playing around with discounts, etc, etc. Now, it seems like it's actually Chinese companies that have just taken it abroad. Um, Nick, you've been speaking very passionately
2: about this concept of Chinese e-commerce playing gamifying the experience in in China, right? I mean, I think the the thing about gamification that I've, I've always found interesting is that you look at China and and the way they're so good at creating games and creating uh, you could say engaging experiences, some might say addicting experiences, but they've essentially applied that same logic to e-commerce. And so when you open an app, I see my wife do this all the time. There may not even be an intention to buy. Simply an intention to engage. And with all the types of features and incentive programs, and of course, the things I was working on when I was at JD, the AI recommendation algorithms, you see a lot of things that just keep you engrossed in the material. And, you know, if you're very close to collecting that next badge to, to move up in your like loyalty status, you'll go for that. I mean, I've started checking my loyalty status on various e-commerce platforms and like, like C-Trip, like, a lot of different digital platforms. But the key here is that this type of engaging behavior I haven't seen in the West. And it happened really quickly when companies like Sheehan and Timu went over there. I wasn't even in America at the time. And then suddenly these apps are like shooting up the charts, of the most used, you know, the most used apps or most downloaded apps in, in America. So I was tracking this change because I was calling this three years ago and a lot of people and a lot of my family and friends in America were saying, like this is really weird stuff. It's like, it's like looking at a Japanese TV show, and you're like, oh, that's weird. That's like Japanese, you know. And and when you look at Chinese e-commerce experiences at that time, it was like, oh, that's weird. That's something Asian, you know. And and now it seems very commonplace.
1: Yeah, and for me, like fundamentally, this proves one thing, right? Is that we are all the same type of human beings, no matter which nationality or race we are in, and we we get triggered by the same type of mechanisms you put in an app in order to trick you to buy more or use the app more.
0: Yeah, and and just to kind of chime in here as well, I, I think on top of that, I think what we predicted a few years back was that, you know, maybe our prediction was that certain Chinese companies will be successful abroad or in the West. And we, maybe we saw Alibaba as one of those companies. And then we talked a lot about like Tencent and what their next move is and so on, especially around social media and so on. But I think we were correct in the manner of that a Chinese company or certain Chinese companies would be successful. We were not correct when we sort of predicted which ones, because now we're seeing TikTok, right? And we're seeing Shein and and we're seeing uh, Timu and so on. We're not seeing Alibaba or Tencent being that successful in the West.
2: I, I just wanted to tease the point because what we see is incredible revenue numbers in like year one or year two of launching in the U.S. for Timu specifically, and Shein's been there a little longer. Mm. But do you think the jury's still out as to whether these companies can sustain their success? Because you know they're they're buying a lot of Facebook ads, Google ads, and you know in the early days, Wish.com was it was the bell of the ball. Everybody was talking about their business model and yeah, now look yeah. at where they are. So I don't know, maybe it's a TBD. We don't know if they're gonna be successful, let's say three to five years in the future. I, I totally agree on that, because like, depending on what
1: you define as success, right? There is one thing that we all can learn from this is that we've seen new ways to do a blitz scaling when it comes to user acquisition when you're an e-commerce player. I think we have not really seen that in this type of scale before, with maybe the exception of if we were to call Groupon an e-commerce player many, many years back. And then I think another learning we have seen is how you think about lifetime value differently. I.e., you're thinking of them as an app user and not necessarily only a consumer that goes into my website or app four times per year to make an average order of let's say a few hundred dollars and instead i see them as a an user and then i just get them back all the time to buy new things and every order maybe it may be small that's fine but i just need them to kind of build that behavior of being used to mm-hmm. transacting with me as a brand
0: yeah, and I, I think that's a really good point and i've been going on and on about like these companies not they have a different view on on e-commerce they're more reminiscent of the mentality of Candy Crush than let's say Salando. They think more about like, hey, can I just get people onto my app and get them to engage and so on. And if we're talking about like sustainable business models, I think that is what is very different if you compare like a Shein or a Timu from, let's say, Wish, is that Wish sort of only played on there's a, there's something cheap for you to buy right now. But they weren't that good in building that sort of addictive behavior, as I think both Shein and Timu are are at least better at than, than Wish.
2: Well, do you think it's worthwhile kind of discussing the difference between Shein and Timu? Like, I think that Timu presents itself as a platform, where it sells a lot of cheap affordable stuff from all around the world. Now, Shein is doing the same thing, but it presents itself as a consolidated brand. Hmm. So it seems to me from, from an outsider's perspective that Timu feels much more like Wish, where Shein at least has a fan following that is more akin to brand loyalty than what Timu has built. I think the way to think about this,
1: right, is that we need to look at the fundamental mechanisms that made a lot of Chinese e-commerce successful that some companies are trying to export to the rest of the world now, hmm. whether it's a Shein or Timor or someone something else. And I think this is the framework anyone like Bjorn maybe could use when he's trying to analyze a new up-and-coming e-commerce app, whether they're going to succeed or not. Because fundamentally, they're just trying to do one simple thing, which is getting daily active users. And then you can talk about how they're and that's going to be different for everyone depending on, you know, their starting point, their expertise as a company, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So she is doing it by launching new products all the time in a specific segment. So it convinces you as a user to go in there and browse every single day because it feels you're launching something new every day. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Timu is doing it in a exactly like Pinduoduo in China. Which is that they are kind of gamifying an experience around discounts that is makes you entice to go in there because it feels like you're getting something new every day. And if we actually think about it, it's very, very close to some of the largest betting and casino companies on earth on in how they are gamifying the experience. Oh, we're just having this lucky draw today. You can win a dollar and you know, Finding new reasons for you to come back to the app so you can gamble more in 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 that scenario, right? And in Timo scenario or Pinduoduo or actually Taobao in China now, it's about you to shop more.
2: That, so I think that's a really great point. And the kind of the gambling features that you see in social gamification, especially when applied to e-commerce, I think it's really powerful upfront, especially when people haven't experienced it yet. My question for you is: both of you who follow the e-commerce space closely. Like in the West, what e-commerce platform, not e-commerce brand, but the e-commerce multi-brand platform has risen to prominence and sustained that level of excellence across many, many years. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any. I remember back in the day, there was a brand that did a lot of steep discounts. It was, I think it was a New York-based brand called Guilt. And, you know, again, they, they had all of those metrics, rapid user growth, unicorn valuation, venture capital pouring in left and right and then very very quickly after that nothing like they they'd sold for i i don't i don't even know i think they were acquired or they sold out for like bargain basement so what multi-brand e-commerce platform has demonstrated sustained success over multi-decades let's say i think we can twist the question around right nick we can talk about it
1: in China first, because it's a much more mature market. Because a similar thing happened in China, right? You have had a gazillion different e-commerce companies trying the same playbook, only very few have succeeded. True. And then it comes to the mechanisms of it again. So, okay, so let's say in theory, uh, let's copy paste the casino model. Like you figure out new ways to create endorphins and that feeling of, getting stuff every single day and puts you in a happy place and you're ready to spend money in a casino or in a shopping shop stuff. Yeah. So you're trying to generate the exact same reactions. And this is like, you cannot control it as a human being. It just comes out of you, emotional.
2: Well, I mean, it it feels like what you're saying is this time is different. What you're saying is this time, these multi-brand platforms have weapons at their disposal, i.e. these kind of casino-like gamification tools and features that are crazy addicting and will drive user retention in a way that no multiband platform in the past has been able to?
1: Uh, no, I think it's about how you're connecting dots. So it's the same as if I am a casino company, right? If I do it in the right way, I'm profitable already. It's be- is because I got to do multiple things at once. Number 1, I got to understand that when I have that, you know, flywheel of stuff and users come in winning that $1, am I going to to get this person to spend it on blackjack or texas holdem? And if I get them to spend it on blackjack, I need to figure out my business model for blackjack specifically, you know, so I can make enough money, but then I also need to figure out what happens if they lose money on Blackjack. Do I trigger them again in generating kind of something and they get another free dollar for something else? That, from a lifetime value perspective, makes sense because I can't just give them back a dollar every time they lose a dollar. So they're probably going to lose $2 and I give them back a dollar and my margin is okay. So that entire ecosystem, me as an e-commerce company, got to figure out. It's not only just launching one game in my an app and then everything's gonna solve itself. It's about understanding if I trigger them in of recent X, do I get them to buy shoes or fashion or something else? And what happens the second after they bought? Within how many minutes or seconds do I need to trigger them again saying that they got another discount voucher for another thing? And what is the flow? And that is actually tremendously hard to figure out. Like in theory, I can tell you how it should be, right? But in actual data, in real time, being able to figure out which user wants what... That is the competitive advantage. So if you have developed your own AI or your own like metric tracking system and you have your margins in place and your business model in place, then you can actually build out a system that automatically does that. But it's not super easy to execute.
2: And so what your take is that Chinese entrepreneurs have a leg up when it comes to running e-commerce casinos. They have more experience. They've done it before. And they can repurpose their business model that's been successful in China to other places in the world and sustain that success. Exactly. And because it triggers human
1: instinct, it actually does not matter which nationality or race the end user is. I think that's the key thing that this has proven now.
2: And you know what I'm doing right now? I'm buying underwear. Because all of this stuff that you've been talking, it has got me excited. So I, I took out my phone and I started scrolling because I remember I have a coupon that's going to expire, but I can only use it on red underwear, which apparently is good luck in China. <laughs> I'm glad that you
0: found like a bargain. So um, we're going to move on to the next question. But before we do that, I think we, we strayed a little bit away from Bjorn's question, which was, you know... Do we see a specific company or a specific industry that is going to dominate, right? So gun to your head, Tom, company that we should look out for or industry that we should look out for?
1: Björn, we've loved having you in this podcast, but I have no idea. I'm really sorry.
2: I don't know is also an answer. Um, Nick, do you want to? I don't want to know the answer because like, I didn't know about mm-hmm. Timu before it, became like the number one downloaded app that shows how out of the loop so, I am. I didn't see it coming and well, I don't want I mean, to see the next one coming either. Good answer.
0: So we're going to move on to the last question of the day um, because um, we've been so eager at discussing these points. But I, I think we have time for one more question. So it's a what if, who's next kind of question. So this is from uh, Robin, one of our listeners uh, who also sent in uh, an email and he or she could be a she too. Um, Hen writes from a tech perspective, which Asian market will be the next China? And I assume, like that person is meaning, you know, that we've seen a lot of innovation, and it's been this kind of melting pot of, of innovation and, and technology and, and development for the last decade. So, um, where should we turn our heads towards? Um, do you think, gentlemen?
1: I mean, like from a just GDP market perspective, obviously, very few markets in the world have the potential to become next China. Mm -hmm. But if we just think about what else besides the huge market, a way to summarize tech from China has been totally different ways to solve the same business problems. Right. So from that perspective, then I think it's more about thinking about which Asian countries have... Totally different realities in terms of how their society is structured, their infrastructure, you know, roads, how e-commerce or shopping works. And based on that, they will probably invent totally new ways to solve the same problems.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think again, also what you're saying is that, you know, there are so many different factors playing in, right? For for China to be this melting pot when it came to, to when it comes to technology and and for that to happen right now and so on. There are a lot of things chiming in, but if we just compare it to India, like I'm not an India expert in any way, but I've been to India in the recent months quite a lot of times, and, and have a lot of contact with that market and so on. I think it's easy to get fooled by demography. And with that said, like you see similarities in just uh, you know huge ass population, like there's 1.4 billion people in each market, and therefore you know a lot of us assume that oh well, then you know India will be next. But if you look at India, like there's a lot of technology happening in India, but there's also, it feels a bit, you know, uh, low tech, actually, uh, certain things, you know, and, and now I'm just ref- like comparing it to China and China's very high tech. And then you have like cultural aspects such as, you know, things that are playing in like in China, we have seen like a, a very large boom in middle class or people who are like at their early stage of consumption. Um, we 've seen a large boom in that for the last ten years, and that has you know benefited from like having digital infrastructure around commerce and payments and so on, whereas in India you know you don 't see that booming middle class in the same way like you still see a lot of really rich people and a lot of really poor people, so you have like not as fast growing middle class so therefore like just a comparison, like the Indian Alibaba, which is Mintra. They have around 200 million users. I might be wrong by like 50 million users um, plus plus minus. But my point here is like, if the largest e-commerce platform in a market that has 1.4 billion people has 200 million people, then that is a very clear proof to me that the market itself is not ready to go, go fully digital yet. Because these people are shopping, they're not just not shopping online, they're shopping in in informal markets and informal retail, which is like all that, like clothes markets and black markets and, and, you know, they're buying fallen off the truck stuff instead of buying the brand stuff and so on. So like there's an immaturity in in that. And sorry, this was my rant of saying like, it's really, really difficult to predict which nation will be the next China. With that said, like you're seeing a lot of interesting things happening in India and you're seeing a lot of interesting things happening in Malaysia and, and in Thailand and Vietnam and so on, like, but there's not one nation that is kind of that one melting pot where you see like all the venture capital is going there, all like the, the, the tech heads are, are, are moving there and so on. And I don't think we're going to see that for the rest of our lives. Um, that's my very blunt opinion.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. But I th- like if we talk about close seconds, maybe there are a few, but I think we gotta remember that all of the so-called innovation and everything happening usually has one source, which is dramatic GDP increase or dramatic source of funding, i.e., you know, a lot of capital behind. And yeah. that capital never comes from the private sector. It comes from a se- governmental sector first and then the private sector follows, right? And there's only one other place on earth right now where you're seeing concentrated excessive spending on everything from sports to tech to building new cities. And that is the Middle East.
2: Hmm. That is exactly what I've been waiting to say because like, who's going to be the next China? There's no next China. China's going to be the next China. Like, but the question is, what region in the world may exhibit characteristics that we have come to associate with China? And Tom, as you mentioned, it's that that kind of bold, top-down, government-led spending on that vague word, innovation and ecosystem that you see in the Middle East. It's, you know, what is it going to lead to? We don't know, but there's that bold approach to just putting money at a problem and attracting entrepreneurs from wherever without asking anything about what they're doing where where they came from and see what you get. Um, And incidentally, a lot of the companies building tech products in the Middle East are Chinese. I I just had dinner with a friend the other day who said that he's now contemplating moving his whole family from Shanghai, where it's super expensive to live and it's really competitive here, to Dubai because he got a really great job offer at a tech company and the schools are good there. And the company will pay for all of his kids education. Like that scale of ambition in the Middle East is something that it kind of reminds me of those maybe about 15, 20 years ago in China when venture capital was equally as ambitious. It was like, you have a cool project. You're a good team, good background. We'll, we'll, we'll back you. We'll put money behind it and we'll see what happens. Yeah. We want to move fast. I wonder if, um, the Middle East builds the next TikTok product, it comes like super popular in the US, like how <laughs> American politicians would react to that.
1: The only reason why I have an opinion of, we might see a lot of innovation from that region of the world, especially from UAE and Qatar and Saudi is simply because of how many stories I've heard about great entrepreneurs choosing to move there because that's where they got funding or that's why where they have really big clients. And whether it's right or wrong, the only way I look at it is about is that if there are enough entrepreneurs, really smart people, going to anywhere in the world, stuff will happen from that place. And whether it's going to happen for that local market or it's going to be global startups—that's a different topic.
0: Okay, here's a control question for you, Tom. You're a big football fan, yeah? Yeah. Um, I would say huge, even. Ronaldo and a bunch of other people have, you know, joined clubs in the Middle East. Uh, Most likely due to a very heavy paycheck, yeah? Is that going to make them a superior football nation, do you think?
1: No, but the purpose of that is totally different versus the purpose of attracting entrepreneurs to the region. The purpose of that is purely sports washing and making sure people don't criticize certain countries for really shitty choices they have made as a country. And with that, I mean the government in that country. Yes. While the other thing about getting entrepreneurs and funding their startups has been about securing future HQ locations for the next Facebook or Google or whatever of the world. And I think those two are totally separate and therefore very different how we think about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll buy that argument. So to, 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 to draw on that the equivalent would be like in, on the football side, They just offered one of the best players in the world, Mbappé, like a billion something per year in salary, which is like 100X versus the highest. It is like insane number, right? So the equivalent in the startup space, if you were to do that, is not to get 200,000 entrepreneurs into a country. It will be go to one company and tell them, I'll give you a billion dollars if you just move to my country. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that is not what they're doing. They're doing something infrastructural. Now, again, what's alike in both cases is that they're using checks to make sure you don't ask too many questions and just go there and work. Right. Right. That is the common denominator.
0: Hmm. Definitely. Thank you both very much. I think we, uh, we went very deep in, into these questions and, uh, I appreciate that. So, before we hang up, before we uh, conclude today's episode, I want to hear like, Nick, do you have any more plans this summer? Any fun stuff coming up?
2: Uh, nothing planned yet, but all this talk about the Middle East is getting me excited. Apparently that's where, all the, uh, that's where all the money is. And if Mbappe can get like a billion, how much does that mean I can get? <laughs> Tom, what do you say? Put a price tag on it. How many zeros? I have no plans, but I'm actually very curious to check it out because I haven't heard a lot of things. So maybe that's in the plan.
0: I would say less than a billion. You would get less than a billion. I would say that's my safe bet.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, it seems like he's smart enough to turn down that deal and actually want to become one of the best athletes in the world instead of only looking at the paycheck. Hmm. I mean, that's,
0: uh, it gives me hope. So Tom, uh, what about you? Any fun plans? Where are you going next, by the way? What's your next destination?
1: Uh, Hopefully I'll have very little travel so I can spend more time in Shanghai and China. And and what are you
0: going to do? Are you going to have vacation or just going to work like you always do? You work like crazy weeks.
1: Can I instead change the topic and give our listeners a recommendation about the podcast? I've been? totally obsessed with oh, yeah. the entire summer is it called Digitala draken it's besides digitala draken of course uh, and I, i'm sure m- most of our listeners have already heard this but for the very few that haven't the acquired it is one of the best podcasts ever produced except for then digitala yeah
0: i agree that's it's a very good uh, um, tip for, for a podcast definitely
1: and don't get scared away that the episode is like a couple hours long. They, the, the level of deep dive they go into stories about Nike or LVMH is not educating you necessarily about the company only. It's summarizing how the entire industry changed, how, what struggles the companies went through, how they solved certain business problems, but also how consumer behavior have changed over time in specific segments. If I were to recommend anyone that are thinking of doing the type of MBA that Nick did and spent a lot of money on. Don't do it. Just listen to the choir. Save yourself two hundred
2: thousand dollars. How do you feel about that, Nick? I'm downloading the podcast now. <laughs> In shame.
0: Tack till de som har lyssnat. Jag heter Jacob Blavén. Du har också hört Tom Song och Nicholas Yang. Producent är Katarina Andersson och postproduktion görs av Kristoffer Folin. Vill du upp dig i mer text? så besök svd.se. Och du kan just nu testa 30 dagar, alltså en hel månad, gratis genom att gå in på prenumerera.svd.se draken. Där kan du signa upp och få tillgång till allt premiuminnehåll och du kan såklart avsluta precis när du vill. Vi hörs snart igen. Du har lyssnat på Den digitala draken, en podd från Svenska Dagbladet. Ansvarig utgivare är jag, Anna Kareborg.